morning, got an invitation to help Congress out in an investigation. Man came around and knocking at the door, gave me a paper that said, what for subpoena? Looking for un-Americans. Look in the mirror. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is the bluff of the century. Richard Nixon, Alger Hiss, and the Cold War. Today's show is about knowing and believing, and our key players are Alger Hiss, Richard Nixon, and Whitaker Chambers. Behind the scenes lurks the military-industrial complex as fronted by the Dulles brothers, in particular John Foster, and corporate collaboration with Hitler's Third Reich. But there is also in this story the justified fear of being hounded and jailed for the crime of being homosexual. Yes, it was illegal and for supporting civil rights for black Americans. My guest via Skype from London is Joan Brady, a noted author of suspense fiction who has recently published the book Alger Hiss, Framed, a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. Brady met Alger Hiss in 1960 and was a casual acquaintance from then on. Her book hinges on the two-hour off-the-record testimony given by Chambers to HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee, and orchestrated by Nixon. The conviction of Alger Hiss for perjury in 1950 continues to define the terms of what it means to be American. But the definition seems always professed in the negative, anti-communist most insistently through the 20th century, and now anti-Islam. To be American is to be strongly not something else. The trial of the century was a rather public beginning to a continuing age of the politics of fear and paranoia, and it was the beginning of the political career of Richard Milhouse Nixon, a red-baiting genius who played every hand to win, regardless of circumstance. And as an accomplished poker player, he was the king of the bluff. Nixon went all-in on Hiss with one card, the phantasmagoric and ever-changing quote-unquote witness testimony of Whitaker Chambers. I first heard of Whitaker Chambers not through the history books or knowledge about the trial of the century, but through his association with modernist poetry. In the essay, A Spook in the House of Poetry, Elliot Weinberger tells us that by 1930, Chambers had become mildly famous as the translator of a bestseller, Felix Salton's Bambi, of all things, and as the author of poems in The Daily Worker and short stories in The New Masses. The poems were routine, but the stories were a success. But Chambers was a liar, or to be generous, an extremely successful fabulist, and that made him quite useful to the upstart Nixon. Peas in a pod, or better, as we shall hear, seeds from the same pumpkin. here's the moral without a doubt, if you want to be free, you've got to sing out. Sing it loud, sing it strong, people are singing a freedom. So I guess we should set it up. Uh, Again, I I don't think too many people may know entirely what this is about. It's the trial of the century, you say. This is a cultural event, a social event, an institutional event. This particular moment in time is a difficult one um, in the country generally, right? So we're... Oh, yes. Yeah. So this is is a big part of the story, and this is a big part of how all these things are happening, the the politics of it, the, the... GOP being out of out of power for so long, coming after FDR. But let's just paint that picture then. Then uh, let's try to paint the era of Alger Hiss, uh, Wicker Chambers, uh, Richard Nixon as a as a youthful politician, uh, not the person that we necessarily think of anymore. Right? This was a, 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 a the same Nixon, but a, a more more, yeah, more vigorous and vital Nixon. Very young mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and exceedingly promising. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was he when this happened. He was. 
a junior congressman. He had barely got himself elected, and he had got it got himself elected by red baiting. Right, right. This is important. Let's talk about red baiting then, because that that okay. is somewhat of the template of the whole thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, what is red baiting? Well, it was a bit like the feeling now about jihad. Mm -hmm. Everybody's terrified of almost anybody with a slightly Arabic name, uh, you know, and then it was, it was communists. Mm -hmm. Everybody was terrified of communists. America had no threat, was really not threatened at all, except by, you know, except by politicians. <laughs> In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings, or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. If a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. But there are other communists who don't show their real faces, who work more silently. It was the, the atom bomb period. Right. And the Russians hadn't quite got the bomb. They got it the next year before Alger was brought before, or before he insisted on appearing before the House Un-American Activities right. Committee. That's important that he actually insisted on right. appearing. Right. Uh, but it was, people were terrified. I mean, a friend of mine told me that as far away as Canada, children had to have the lights on to, to go to bed because they were terrified communists would steal their souls while they slept. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> Some interesting stories that we tell ourselves, I guess. Huh? Yeah. Uh, well, so uh, time frame then, this is... Uh, uh, it's shortly after World War II. Right, where, where things really take off. But red baiting had been around a little, uh, obviously, before that. There were two sets of red baiting. Mm -hmm. One was in the 20s. That mm -hmm. was the first red scare. Mm -hmm. This was the second red scare, and it hadn't quite got going. And, you know, it was it was going, but not brilliantly until Nixon arrived uh, in, well, actually, until his uh, Congress congressional battle for uh, 1946, I guess. 46. That was his first his first bid, yeah. right? Yeah. He was, uh, that was his he, first bid. He was pretty much a nobody, called. right? Nixon was no Nixon was really a no one Absolutely at the time. Right? Nobody. Right. Except he was backed by big oil. He was backed by the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> he had quite a few. And he had some money from, you know, from poker winning. Oh, that's right. I think right. <laughs> he was a really good poker player right. and a really good actor, which is another thing I right. think that's interesting. He, you know what he was known for? No. Being able to burst into tears on cue. On cue. Interesting. On cue. Can't trust, tri <laughs> can't trust Tricky Dick. So Tricky, Tricky was his nickname like right out of the gate too, right? I think just about because, I mean, he was, it was really astonishing what he did. He had a whole team of of um, telephone callers mm -hmm. that would call up and say, did you know that Jerry Voorhees, his opponent, mm -hmm. is a communist? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
And he, as he says, as Nixon says in his tapes, I never thought Voorhees was a communist. <laughs> right. He was one of the most decent right. people I knew. But you have to understand, I had to win. Yeah. So, so Nixon comes across as honest several times in the book, right? To, to say, this is not about the truth. This is about me winning. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. this is the poker, the poker aspect, right? There's the truth in poker well, I, is you win. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. But also, I think it's because he was probably, you know, he was taping himself, the idiot. <laughs> and I think, you know, to some degree, right. he, you know, he caught himself off guard. Yeah. yeah. And we do have that 18 minute gap. Um, mm-hmm. And God only knows what he said in there. <laughs> well, it's, um, you know, if there is a way to to be instructive about it, like to, to walk in the right direction, so we can kind of go A B C D. Your book goes back and forth, right? So the the, the good thing about your book to me is that uh, it it does help us because it's a an account of yours as well. You know who yeah. Joan Brady is at the time, uh, the 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 youthful uh, ballet dancer who who That's is right. who, who happens to meet Alger Hiss. And, you know, I, I, all these years later, deciding there's a story there to write about that, or maybe it had been percolating in a way that stories often do, right? Well, it had, but I, you see, I got into trouble, into legal trouble mm. myself, mm-hmm. and was actually sort of threatened with prison. It seems idiotic, but that is what was happening. And I didn't know anybody who'd been in such a situation before, except Alger, and he was dead. Hmm. So this is why I started looking into the case. It seemed to me, you know, I, I was looking for solace rather than... <laughs> ah, right, right. So we have Nixon, and to be clear, Nixon comes home from the military, right? He was a Navy officer? Yes, yes, he was. Navy officer where apparently he learned to really play poker and... and yes, yeah, yes, yeah. And, and apparently uh, uh, he was really good, I yeah, gather. Yeah. I mean, the figures vary, but it was anywhere between $3,000 and $10,000 that he that he came home with. 40, 1946 dollars, so yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. long time ago <laughs> right. dollars. So it's a lot of money. of money, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, what, what struck me, though, is that you, you print in the book um, an, an advertisement for a uh, <laughs> politician, right? For a wanted, yeah. we want a we want a politician that will, and it does interestingly say no strings attached. In the- yeah, well, it is. It's quite interesting, and I mean, there aren't records really of what went on to get him into this position. Mm-hmm. But he was he's always been a chancer. I mean, he's just you know he yeah. stopped he started here, and I think it was in fact the mafia lawyer uh, Chotner who suggested the red baiting. Mm. Mm. And Nixon really went for that. Um, and basically what he did was accuse his opponent of being any kind of communist. And he I mean, he was really extraordinary. There's right. one debate they had in which Nixon held up a piece of paper and said he had the proof right here in his hand. And nobody ever saw it. <laughs> right. And it's just right. astonishing. Well, that's the shocking part of the book, too, was the clear, you know, the fabulism of all these tales. You know, if you can just um, look at Whitaker Chambers himself, a fabulist in his own right, a very oh, com- yes. accomplished fabulist in his own right. Really, um, very um, and uh, and to think that Nixon himself is a fabulist, uh, but a, a shrewd political fabulist. But I think he was closer to fake news. Uh, well, I like that. That's a good idea. We should say that. And he's like yes, almost a progenitor he, of fake he news. He that he believed it any more than he believed right. Jerry Voorhees was a communist. Um, I mean, there's one quote from his one of his aides, Stripling, uh, Robert Stripling, in which Stripling says he didn't care whether Alger Hiss was 
a communist or a billy goat, he was going to get him. Didn't matter. Yeah. Didn't yeah, matter. Didn't matter. Well, that, again, one of those things that's, that's uh, hard to stomach is the idea of people in power um, having zero compunction about how they go about getting what they want. You know, the, there's, there seems to be zero in – well, there's zero in this book of the idea of the good of the state or the good of the community or the good of society yeah. or, the, you know, the nation's interest. They're, they're Richard Nixon's interest. They're the GOP interest. There's mob interest. There's Dulles's yeah. interest in military uh, funding. This is the – again, this is – there are so many things tangled in this era as well, right? Yeah, aren't there, though? Yeah. So th that's the thing you want to just get – like I just wanted to read every book that you had, you know, listed <laughs> – to uh, to, <laughs> to sort of untangle what I could with it, you know that's that's the thing that again you think, oh my gosh, they're uh, Nazis and uh, support for uh, you know munitions contracts, and this is an era of of such entanglement of the a political ideology of war machinery of giant money and power. Uh, and then here we have Nixon and Hiss and Chambers become this focal point. And you know, in the book, behind it is Dulles. You know, behind oh, yes. it, uh, behind it is a war machine that is, is going to use politics. Nixon is a tool in a sense as well. Right he was a very time. willing one. If he's well, sure, sure, sure. I, sure. I have the feeling that that he was a real. You know, this was really for him the opportunity of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. He was a kid from nowhere. Mm -hmm. And just as smart as they come, he would have, he had a scholarship, I think either to Harvard or to Yale, but mm -hmm. he couldn't take it up because mm -hmm. the family had a baby. Ah. And so he got caught at Whittier and then he got a, a he did go to Yale to get his law degree, mm -hmm. which stood him in very good stead. But uh, he was, he was very much his own man, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. I think he just took whatever he could take that would fulfill his ambitions, which yeah. were obviously getting bigger and bigger and bigger every time he woke up. It's time for a break. This is Newspaper Men Meet Such Interesting People from 1947 by Vern Partlow. Nixon, who must be considered a master of the strategic press leak, serves again as a model for the circus that is our national media. More on the framing of Alger Hiss by Richard Nixon when Interchange returns on WFHB. Oh, a newspaper man meets such interesting people. He wallows in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, -a -ling. city desk, hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess, meets the test. Yes, a newspaper man meets such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Ha, 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 You remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. She needed money for a new fur coat. To get insurance, she employed skullduggery. She up and cut her husband's only throat. She chopped him into fragments. She stuck them in a trunk. She shipped them to her uncle back yonder in Podunk. Oh, a newspaper man meets such interesting people. It must have startled poor old Sadie's unk. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk, hold the press, hold the press. Inside story, good and gory. It's a mess, meets the test. Yes, a newspaper man meets such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Yes, a newspaper man meets such interesting people. I've met the gal with million dollars. Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Joan Brady, author of a book claiming Richard Nixon framed Alger Hiss through his position on the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC. 
This was a committee of the United States House of Representatives created in 1938 to investigate alleged disloyalty and subversive activities on the part of private citizens, public employees, and organizations suspected of having communist ties. It became a standing committee in 1945 and was maintained as such for the next 30 years being abolished in 1975. Well, what's fascinating here is that Nixon, the machinations that you describe, the politicians, the mob, the money, uh, the war machine, these things now I, I sort of just go, oh, of course. You know, yeah. and <laughs> you, you know, sadly, you just go, oh, yeah, that's who we are. That's what this country is. That's what capitalism is. That's what yeah. this quote unquote democracy is. And at the same time, then you at the center of the storm here is Alger Hiss, who is an oddly arrogant, hubristic uh, ideologue of his own in the sense that there is the right way to do things. And I am yeah. Alger Hiss and I am not wrong. And you should not well, think that I'm wrong because I am telling you the truth. I am Alger Hiss, you know, yeah, which is, yeah. an, a, you know, a, 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 at the center of this storm of the malfeasance and everything else that goes around, along in politics is a guy that says, how is this happening to me? Because I am always upright. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I grew up to be chivalrous. Right. And right. I shouldn't be being stabbed this way. Right. I think he really was just plain stunned. Mm hmm. And also, the arrogance just didn't give away. Oh. I mean, his his lawyers were corporate lawyers. I mean, really, this is a time you need a good criminal lawyer. But I think he just couldn't bring his mind around to that, that he needed somebody who knew a little about theater, for right. example, which well, he didn't. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point, too, that the, you know, the, uh, I think it's his himself who says, you know, the law isn't about justice, it's about the law. But in this sense, too, it's about theater. You know, it is also oh, yes. about the performance within, not only within the chambers, where, between lawyers, but in the public uh, imagination as well. Well, I think the difference really is that he was the kind of lawyer who spoke to gentlemen in comfortable rooms hmm. about terms of treaties and things. Right, right, right. And he had never even seen a jury before he was tried. Uh, I mean, and he, he had no idea, as he said to me at, at one point, that what he hadn't realized, that it was a gladiatorial contest between the two lawyers and nobody else really mattered. No, yeah. A tennis match, I guess. Yeah, that's that's a hard thing to swallow, too, if you know anything, if you follow anything about uh, jurisprudence or uh, criminal trials in particular, but uh, civil ones also. Obviously, you have lawyers, and the lawyers are the only ones that get to speak, and they get to They're tell you when to speak, to how speak, to speak. Then, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a corporate lawyer can't handle a criminal case. Right. I don't think I think his second, the lawyer he had for the second trial, had never seen a jury either. <laughs> and he's just, how can you be so? He, he, he see, it's as though he had a blind spot. He could not believe that people were not basically good at heart. Yeah, yeah. And that they would believe this strange Chambers who, I mean, he would change his story within the same sentence. Yeah, it's a good story. Like, it didn't matter what the story was, he told it well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, oh, he, With if, conviction. He, if you ever, well, if you ever hear him, you can still hear him online, and it's a wonderful voice. It really is. It's a, it's a voice any actor would kill for. The story is spread 
They're testifying against Mr. Hiss. I'm working out some old grudge for motives of revenge or hatred. I don't hate Mr. Hiss. We were close friends, but we are caught in the tragedy of history. He did it so well. Yeah. I and mean, he just yeah. spoke so well. He put everybody else in the shade. <laughs> well, uh, again, it's a, uh, I want to figure out a way to, to be, um, to get to those things that are happening behind the scenes. You know, a good part of, of the book shows, again, as you say, uh, his, his own arrogance, his own, uh, inability to see that he was, himself a pawn in a particular game and yeah. he couldn't see that he was actually advised by john as john foster dulles was who advised advised oh, him told him not to get involved and then dulles himself you know pretty much throws him under the bus and you know knows how yeah, to get okay. he might as well make use of him if he's going to be this fool i might as well make use of it exactly i mean <laughs> dulles told him not to dare Huack to All right. bring, you know, to, he, he wanted to testify. He wanted to testify under oath that he was not guilty of these things. He had no interest in these things. And he demanded that he right. be allowed to testify. He demanded to and, put a target on his back. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah. Yeah. He um, served up really well. It's really an interesting thing to, to, to do it yourself, you know, to have, a, yeah. to have your name be Alger and Hiss. Oh God! You know, and then and then to have Whitaker Chambers, you know, uh, stand against you. All these names are fantastic as well, right? They do seem well, to come Whitaker right out Chambers of Chambers' name was actually J. Vivian, and also yeah, a, fa- a fabulous of names as well, right? And well, why? Because there, are, I mean, obviously that this is the point that you get to in terms of fake news or in terms of just the yep. way the media manipulated everything or me- media was manipulated. But also I, Nixon has Nixon has people in his pocket, people that are he's just feeding information to all the time, all erroneous or all false or all here's my next move and this is going to paint hiss this way or we're going to put him in a corner here and uh just go ahead and leak this out at this point you know you 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 design your book shows a design from from the beginning that you know i i I don't know that nixon knew exactly what he was going to do except get this guy Mm. and he was brilliant um the way he sort of shifted his approach, you know, as things changed a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and when there's a point at which some papers are brought forth, and as evidence that Alger was um, passing stuff to the Soviets, right. and the Justice Department says they're not important, they're not, they couldn't possibly be of any interest to Stalin. And most of them, you know, were brought around the uh, State Department in a shopping cart. <laughs> I mean, this is just extraordinary. So that is when this ridiculous pumpkin came in. Oh, right. The pumpkin. The pumpkin. (laughs) And the thing that what Chambers said about the pumpkin was the point about it wasn't that it was absurd, but that it worked. Ah. And here you have, after, after this first batch of papers was debunked, up comes the second batch in a pumpkin. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, there's huge media coverage of this pumpkin. And it was... Uh, no, it was December. So they were killing frosts, and here was this nice plump pumpkin <laughs> with a and uh, an arrow, according to Drew Pearson anyway, an arrow of um, squashes pointing to it. 
an insight. I just perfect spy work. Yes, yeah, yes, the spy I mean, work I, is I, inc- incredible, right? <laughs> just absurd. I mean, I thought of doing this as a novel, you know, mm-hmm, first, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. I thought, well, nobody's going to believe this. It's just too yeah. absurd. Well, it's a bad. It's yes, it's a bad novel in itself, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But inside this pumpkin were these. There were three canisters of film and two rolls of film. The two rolls got debunked quite quickly. So Nixon hid the three canisters and said they held the secret Mm. to the most dangerous treason conspiracy in American history. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he would not let them out of HUAC's sight. Mm. And, I mean, this was headlines everywhere along with his pumpkin, which really did catch a lot of attention. Yeah. And there was no way of finding out what was in that at the time. Nobody could have known. Well, so, so Joan, this is what's troubling, right? We should give some uh, flesh to HUAC and its powers right. and how it is that um, this kind of thing can happen and Nixon can actually not show things. What he said was that nobody could be trusted except HUAC mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because the Justice Department, which, which had debunked were, his previous papers. They were full of reds too? or yeah. no, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so the government itself can't be trusted to deal with its own self, which so right. you just have to then again, I guess Nixon, maybe Nixon did this too, like uh, create the, you have to choose one person to believe, one side to believe and doubt everyone else. Uh, on the other side, even if they're in government or in these pr- particular positions well, of neutrality. The one thing that you need to add here is that HUAC was a congressional committee. Right, right. So it was a part of the government. Right, sure, sure. Uh, so, I mean, he wasn't in that sense uh, so completely mad. Right, right. And he did fight hard and he did keep these things secret until the Freedom of Information Act. Well, talk a little bit about uh, HUAC's makeup at the time, too. I know uh, w- w- at least one of them is either uh, a KKK supporter or one of them is... Oh, a, yes, that was Rankin. He yeah. said that he, they couldn't investigate the KKK because it was an old American institution. Yeah, it was It was just as natural as apple pie. <laughs> uh, you know, right, right. And then somebody else was like uh, uh, either a Nazi supporter or or, uh, well, I mean, uh, probably a lot of Nazi supporters at the time. But one, I think there were quite a few. Yeah. I think if you were black, if you were female, if you were Jewish, if you were anything, they hated them all. Yeah. And the language is truly shocking, you know, in the hearings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they really, uh, I mean, this was a committee of bigots. Right. They were also rather stupid bigots. Ah. And the committee itself was really very close to death when Nixon became a part of it. Breathed it he back to life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Nixon is the power here, right? Nixon is oh, yeah, the absolutely. Nixon is the he force. The brains. He yeah. was everything. Right. And he himself says he worked something like twenty two hours every day. Mm. And I mean it was a huge amount a huge job he did. Yeah, a huge job of creating things too. Like oh, yes. yeah, yeah, that's the issue too, is that his work is basically constructing all these I don't. I, they're hardly plausibilities when you write them in your book. I'm like, again, how are these plausible? I mean, it's hard to see it at the time. Like, I'm not there. I'm not hearing it. Uh, you know, that's when you see it on paper. You're like, how in the world did this happen? Well, you can see how it works slowly. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you if you go through the hearings as I did, mm-hmm. and you see what actually happened, and then you see what Nixon leaked. He did the leaking, mm-hmm. as he said, I leaked stuff all over the place. Right, right. In his tapes. And 
he started with, he, I mean, they, after Alger had testified that first time, they all congratulated him. He'd done brilliantly and everything. And next morning, the headlines come out that Nixon and Huac are cracking the spy case. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. been no spy case. Right. They wouldn't even discuss the charges against him, much less right. was there a discussion of spy case. Right. I guess the following day, the headlines said that they were going to New York to interview a mystery witness who was telling the truth, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Chambers or Alger. And by now, Alger was the accused. Right. And um, it turns out, you can read this hearing, which is really quite interesting online, and it turns out that they were going to New York, All they flew all the way to New York to interview Whitaker Chambers. Mm -hmm. He was the mystery witness. He remained Whitaker Chambers in the papers, and he remained the mystery witness as well, who was backing up everything <laughs> Whitaker Chambers said. But this hearing is so astonishing because it's three hours long, and they get a bit of a way through it, and it's perfectly clear that Chambers didn't know Alger at all. I mean, he, he knew him a little bit. Yeah, there was yeah. really some knowledge there. But I mean, he said he was deaf in one ear, and he said the only thing he could remember about the house was a red box, cigarette box. Mm-hmm. And, and they're all getting desperate. Did he drink? No, they, he wasn't allowed to drink. But in fact, they all knew. Chambers says he was five foot nine and everybody could, had seen him in the room and knew he was six feet. Right, right. I mean, they, they could see that this was really not working. And so at, when they're about 25 minutes in, Chambers says, can we go off the record? Right. I mean, the witness right. says this. Right. You have to realize how absurd this is. And they say, off the record. And they are off the record for two and a half hours. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is clearly where all this plan came up. Where the story congeals or, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you worry about 18 minutes. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just a poor left winger. It's time for another break. With a nod toward musical balance, we'll hear Poor Left Winger by Janet Green who was an early 1960s folk singer, whose lyrics were conservative and anti-communist. Some dubbed her the anti-Joan Baez. This song is typical of her work. More with Joan Brady on her book, Alger Hiss, Framed, when Interchange returns on WFHB. Sounds of guitars could be heard Wanging a plaintiff folk song All so intellectual 
What glorious tales I was told Of history's certain progress Into the communist fold Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Joan Brady, and our topic is the matchhead of the Red Scare, the Alger Hiss perjury trial. Hiss was named a communist by Whitaker Chambers in 1948, two years before Joe McCarthy would follow Nixon's example in red-baiting in a Lincoln Day speech to the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia. He produced a piece of paper that he claimed contained a list of 205 known communists that had infested the State Department. What we now call McCarthyism could easily have been dubbed Nixonism. Behind that beard Beat the heart of a frustrated heel Go ahead and tell us a little bit about Alger Hiss. Let's, let's give him a little flesh. Well, he, he was born in, born in Baltimore, and he was schooled. Uh, he, he ended up first going to Johns Hopkins, and then going to Harvard, and he he distinguished himself wherever he went. And then he became uh, a clerk to Justice Holmes, uh, who from whom he got the idea of the that the courts are about law, mm-hmm. not about justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everywhere he went, he first went to a, a law firm at Boston. He did extremely well. His wife wanted to go to New York, so he went to New York because he was very much in love with her. And he did brilliantly there. And then he went to Washington, and he because Frankfurter, another very eminent judge who'd been his teacher, suggested that he go there to help out the New Deal administration. So he, he just rose through the ranks there. Um, he was very good at everything he did. Mm-hmm. And he ended up at the uh, Carnegie Endowment? Um, or International Peace, yeah. As yeah. Pres- and you, you point out that uh, the two previous uh, had been Nobel Peace Prize winners? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like you say, this is an upstanding person. And, and as you say, he'd been investigated by the FBI all along for these particular roles. Oh, yes, he had to be. Right, right. I think probably at the beginning they weren't quite so rigorous, but they did go into his background mm-hmm. very, very carefully mm-hmm. when he became more important. And they, I mean, at one point they had, they had everything. They even, they even looked into his son's babysitters. Ah, well, you never and, can you know, tell. It's just mad. And yes. they found there, nobody had ever had any evidence of his knowing Whitaker Chambers. That mm-hmm. was not even, you know, not. But it would have been such a thing, you see, mm-hmm. because Whitaker Chambers was a shuffling, fat guy who yeah. had a mouth that one of his, uh, I guess one of his teachers said was a devastation of empty sockets right, and black right. stumps. But then Alger was tall, yeah. extremely handsome, very good, lo- you know, very good looking, very well dressed, very well mannered. This was Laurel and Hardy. Yeah, well, it's was- it's definitely a, the the American vision of uh, you know the elite versus the oh, yes. shuffling oh, yes. regular guy, right? The, you got to believe the regular Joe over the uh, the elitist uh, snob you can't trust. Well, there's certainly that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I think the the real elitist non elitist came between Nixon mm-hmm. and Alger rather than. Chambers. Right. You do it. paint it as kind of a personal vendetta between Nixon and his as well. How how did they have yeah. a person? I mean, how did Nixon see him as a, a personal enemy? I think because because Nixon really wanted to be an elite. Mm. He really, really did. And because his family was so poor, because uh, this baby came, he didn't get the chance. Mm. And like a lot of people in that position, he hated anybody who exemplified it. Right. 
Um, and that was certainly Alger. I mean, you say Alger. there are a little bit of a um, – was it Nixon – interviewed or applied for a job at the the law firm that Hiss was at. Is that right? Well, not the law firm mm. Hiss was at. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, the law firm Dulles was at. Oh, right. Oh, right. right. Sullivan yeah. and Cromwell. Right. right. I need, to, I need a, a, a chart to, to keep track oh, of that. It's, it's yeah. very, yeah, I know yeah. it is. It's, it's very... Um, <laughs> Annoying. Yeah, yeah. That's what exactly. that's what that's what your book needed though was a, a chart that 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 put every arrow at at the sort of uh, uh, military industrial complex behind the scene as well, right? So well, there's certainly that. Yeah. But I really wanted it read as a thriller. Oh, it's <laughs> no, it's you. It's well done. Yeah. I enjoyed it, but. What interested me as much as anything, like so, I get I get a fair number of books, right? And I think, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I. Um, and I do like to read them. And I, I was rushing to finish yours actually this morning because, you know, it was, it was such like, what's going to happen? What, you know, I already know, <laughs> you, like, you know what happens, exactly. like, but you're like, how does it turn out? Like, what's next? You know, um, and the, the thing that had prompted me prior to this, I asked a couple of previous guests on the show uh, who, who studied the left uh, literature. And I said, you know, what, can I talk to somebody else about it? Or what should I read about it? You know, what, what can give yeah. me some sense? And they pointed me to the... The, uh, an essay by John Weiner, and uh, he did a, an article on uh, was Alan Weinstein was the author of Perjury, yeah, which you cover in your book as well. Uh, yeah. Perjury came out in 1978, I think, and yeah. basically says Whitaker Chambers told the truth and Alger Hiss didn't. And and I have resource to Soviet documents that say why and how and whatnot. Right. This is the, that's the most amazing part of it. That was uh, almost as much of a shock as the two and a half hours <laughs> when I found out that in fact Weinstein had nothing. Right. He, and the guy who on whom he relies entirely was a guy called Alexander Vasiliev, who's an ex KGB guy. This all came about because the KGB needed money for its pension. Hmm. And they contacted <laughs> That's hilarious the, in the first place, right? I know it's marvelous. Pensioners at the KGB. Absolutely. You don't really think of it. It's a big corporation <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. organization. It has old people in it, too. Yes, yes. And they contacted, I think it was Crown, they contacted Crown Publishers and said, look, we'll give you access to some secret documents if you'll give us some money. Mm -hmm. So an arrangement was made, and the Russians supplied the journalist who was going to do it, which was Alexander Vasilya, who went to an office up at the um, the press office in um in Moscow and sat there with these documents that were presented, were brought, uh, carefully chosen for him. You're right. And brought to him, and he sat there and he went through them and wrote notes on them. He wasn't allowed to cut photocopy anything. He wasn't allowed to take his notes out. Mm -hmm. But he did find a lot about a spy called Alish. And there was the belief in, I mean, there's, is, only one reason to think that Alger might have had any connection with this guy, which was that during the time that uh, Alger was being sentenced, some papers called the Venona Cables came out. These these were cables between American um, communists, American Soviet spies, mm -hmm. and Moscow. They were reporting back. Mm -hmm. And one of these mentions this guy, Alish. And an unknown FBI agent, during the time that Alger was being sentenced, wrote down, likely to be Alger Hiss. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's the only connection between them. So what happened was that in these papers that Vasiliev brought back, or, you know, his, the, his notes, um, there's a, quite a bit of discussion of Alish. Mm. 
And all they do is every time they see Alash, they put in outer hiss. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, this was what's amazing about it, too, is that uh, Vasiliev testified to this in court in London in 2003. And he said there was no connection. Ah. He found no connection. Right. right. But here and he is. Yeah. And there, I, I, would, I have to admit, I was shocked. I didn't know scholars actually would sink that level. Well, that's the point of, obviously, that's the point of John Wiener's uh, essay on it as well. Um, you know, where, uh, what his book in particular is about historians and, and uh, you know, the, the, the bad things they do. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, trusting historians who are also political operatives on some level or careerists or adventurists, you know, whatever name you want to call them anymore, that just is about being opportunists. And so the question arises, you know, as we approach a book like yours as well, uh, which has history in it. I don't think you would call yourself a historian. Um, no, indeed. Uh, but that's the question for us as readers. Um, what is a history, right? What can we trust and how? These are the main questions of the book. How do we trust and who do we decide to trust and how wrong are we going to be? <laughs> I think one of the unusual things about this case mm -hmm is that every bit of it is online. Mm -hmm. You can, If you want to check it, go check it. It's there. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look in the, in the footnotes in one of these various things of Weinstein's, mm -hmm. there, I think there are a thousand footnotes that are just numbers mm. that are referring to numbers that um, Vasiliev is supposed to have remembered. Ah. There's no indication of this, except that, you know, there's page after page after page of numbers. Right. And... You can't check them. No, yeah, no, that's the big issue. You can't check the source, right? You can't check the source at all. Mm. Nobody in the West is allowed in those archives. Right. And I think very few Russians are allowed in those archives. Right. And the only Russians who've actually checked for Alger found absolutely nothing. Well, let's talk about that, too. You you mentioned in yeah. particular in your book a woman, right? Her name was Svetlana, Svetlana Ch Chervanaya. You'd, you'd right. read something of hers in the, what, the American Scholar or... Yeah. yeah, and you decided I, to use use her as your expert of, or one of them. Well, I I, I contacted her. We um, emailed together for I don't know a couple of years, mm -hmm. and I wasn't really interested in what was in the archives. I was interested much more in sort of general questions. I wanted to know, for example, when when Alger was under threat, was there any increase in the traffic? Because mm -hmm. I thought you know that would really be important. You could really tell, mm -hmm. and I had fun. I did find out. I guess later that. One of the great things, if you're a spy, is the amount of paperwork that you leave behind. Mm -hmm. You just leave mountains of it. I mean, this is, it's a bureaucracy. Right, it works like right, a bureaucracy. Right, right. It's a huge paper trail. And when all the other spies that we know about, Klaus Fuchs and Judith Copeland and, and the, the Rosenbergs, uh, the traffic increased immensely. Mm. With Alger, there was no change. Right. Yeah. I found that as significant as anything. Well, you do. It is another part of the book that's also important uh, is that you try to understand spying a little bit. Uh, you know, you try to point out that if Alger Hiss was a spy, he's a terrible spy. Uh, oh. <laughs> right. So, uh, Anne Whitaker Chambers is a terrible spy. If he was had anything to oh, do yes. with being a spy, he was a terrible spy. He was the the dime store spy. Um, yes. That exactly. you, yeah, you well, you do have to make up. 
right? You'd have to you make do. him up, right? And uh, so this is an important point also. But the question is that it's, uh, you know, it's a thing that sits at the center of the uh, of the 20th century for us, the center of uh, communism versus democracy, right? The, the center of this Cold War paranoia that is as much a creation, as you point out, seems almost, uh, 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 again, through the engineering of Richard Nixon to become a massive uh, media frenzy of fear and paranoia, all centered around this this man who is still the calm in the center of the storm, thinking this cannot be happening. I, <laughs> right? But the world is becoming like bifurcated in extremes at that moment. Absolutely. It, it, what you need if you're going to build a movement is fear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was what Nixon was building. He did a great job. He did a great job, and he, but he needed a face, you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what it really was. He needed a face, right. and you couldn't do better than one in the heart of government. Yeah, no, perfect. It's time for our final break. This is I'm No Communist by Carson Robison from 1952. More on The Bluff of the Century with author Joan Brady when Interchange returns on WFHB. Cause communists and spies are making monkeys out of us. The bureaus and departments have been busy night and day. They're figuring out just how we gave our secrets all away. And Congress has appointed a committee, so they said, to find out who's American and who's a low-down red. They call them up to Washington to speak for Uncle Sam. But when they ask them what they are, they shut up like a clam. I wish they'd take and put me on the witness stand today. I'd yell so loud, old Stalin could hear me all the way. I'm no communist, and I'll tell you that right now. I believe a man should own his own house and car and cow. I like this private ownership, and I want to be left alone. Let the government run its business, and let me run my own. Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Who was Whitaker Chambers? Christopher Hitchens wrote... He was the man who made Richard Nixon's self-serving book, Six Crises, a campaign book for an entire career, possible in the first place. Witness, his own work, is indeed the nativist American equivalent of Darkness at Noon or The Captive Mind. With its ostentatious religiosity and its relentless emphasis on redemption and conversion, and its subplot concerning the triumph of the plain man over the devious intellectuals and sinister pointy heads. It was one of the building blocks of McCarthyism, for the Goldwater campaign, and for what eventually became the Reagan Revolution. Stop inflation and take care of what we've got. The communist... Let's talk a little bit about yourself. Uh, uh, it was, again, an important part of the book is how you structured it. You know, how you structured it around your own life, your, your parents as well. Part of learning about uh, anti-Nazi and anti-fascist understanding in this book comes through your parents as well. Yeah. Um, so let, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself in this period. So when did you first meet Alger Hiss and who were you at the time? Well, at the time, I was <clears throat> a dancer. I was, uh, was apprenticed to New York City Ballet and waiting for a contract to come through. And 
I was living with a man much older than myself, whom I subsequently married, and he was the guy who, he was the director of Consumers Union, uh, which is exactly the same as it is now, except he's not the director, he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) And you say they put out Consumer Reports, is that right? They put out Consumer Reports, and he edited that. And one of the things that happened with Alger after he got out of prison was that he had no job. Mm -hmm. He had he couldn't make money for any, uh, he did stand in lines for a bit, but he had to have more money than that. Mm-hmm. He had a, a wife and a son to support. So what he did was to, first he took a job, he got, was managed to get a job as a salesman for Barrett. And that failed after a bit. And he became a salesman for a paper company in Manhattan called Davison Booth. Mm. And he would call people up and say, this is Alger Hiss. <laughs> people who wouldn't pay any attention to an ordinary salesman would perk up a bit. Right. So uh, so they could say at cocktail parties, right. guess who's trying to sell me paper clips? <laughs> <All right. laughs> Things like that. Mm. And he called up Dexter, mm-hmm. the guy I was oh, okay. with in there. And the, unfortunately, the, the company was too small to supply uh, the report's uh, print run. Mm. So... Dexter asked him to dinner instead, and I supplied the dinner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. And uh, this, again, is in New York, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, uh, the and, and let's, let's uh, a little bit about Consumer Union, then, at the time, or maybe prior to that, you know, when it first begins, it's far more of a, uh, uh, than we think of it now, it's more of a leftist organization at the time, uh, would you call it that? Oh, a, yeah. yeah. progressive, left, uh, or even a radical well, uh, paper. Very radical, mm-hmm. actually, because, I mean, the idea, it's the same idea of, you know, uh, save money for the poor, you know, save money for the poor. Right. That's scandal. Right. You want to put it in the pockets of the rich. That's where it belongs. Right. And this was considered very radical. In fact, it was the very first corporation or organization named as a communist front organization. Mm, okay. I didn't know that. Um, mm. So, it, and it, it, there were riots and various things like that around it. But it, by, even by the time I was involved with uh, with it. I mean, as a child, I thought it was so boring. I couldn't, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, testing all this stuff, it just seemed dull. But um, its mm-hmm. history mm-hmm. was that way, and Dexter needed the money. Generally, a uh, an organization meant to protect consumers uh, from... Oh, yeah. From oh, the, yes. the... And that was considered very wicked. And there were there not then at the time any kind of actual government protections? I don't think so. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. this was quite new mm-hmm, that you would mm-hmm. actually tell people about the troubles with the stuff they were buying. Right, right, right. Now, this one can kill you. That one can make you sick. This one is much more expensive and the same thing and, right. you know, that kind of right, stuff. Right, Giving information like that was considered very wrong. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Well, uh, so obviously you met Alger Hiss at post trials, right? So this was, uh, is this the sixties at the time? 1960? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this that is after is. the perjury trial. He loses, let's, you know, it's not a, it's not a spoiler here. He loses the second perjury trial, right? Yeah. He goes to prison. He was, uh, the hung jury on the first one. Uh, hung jury on the first eight one. Eight to and four. Lost. And then he lost the second one. And that was, the second one was where he had a corporate lawyer right. defending him. Shock, shock, again, one of those things that must have been more shocking than anything. First of all, espionage and treason don't make sense. Uh, but perjury, uh, to, to be called a liar, right? To, to, uh, you know, against the one witness, the witness being Whitaker Chambers, yeah. a liar. Well, in that its was face. the virtue, that was the great virtue of perjury. You only needed the one witness. Right. Had it been a trial for espionage, he, Nixon would have had to have two witnesses and some actual solid proof right. that they, he'd have to have witnessed 
a time somebody doing something. Right, right, right. Perjury like tax evasion is the thing that can get people on. Exactly. Al Capone. <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> most of us tell not lies, but we just don't always have our facts straight. Well, in this case, they laid a trap for him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what he did was to deny that he had seen Whitaker Chambers mm -hmm. after uh, 1937. Uh, and what he was telling was the truth, mm -hmm. but and that he had not given him anything. Mm -hmm. And But they said these were lies, so that was... Right, right, right. It, well, I mean, they weren't lies. They were the truth. Right, right. Well, there's, there's. Um, I mean, you do, again, go into some interesting detail, uh, and I, I would say some psychological detail, right? Uh, and, and, and Chambers, uh, Chambers is, um, <laughs> again, it's a, um, just a surprising <laughs> character, right? Um, yes. Um, a fairly terrible character. Like, you wouldn't want to have your cross, you know, like, cross paths with a guy like Chambers. It would be very foolish. He mm -hmm. was terribly intelligent. He really was. But he was very skewed. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, as I say, I don't think he wanted to hurt Alger. He didn't really want to hurt people, but he was preoccupied with, he was a, you know, he was a, a self-publicist mm. and an exhibitionist. Right. And he really, I mean, he'd been writing about spies since he was in high school. Right, right. Well, you say he's a, uh, I mean, there's, there's evidence he was a, a sexual predator as well. And, oh, yes. Uh, obviously, at the time, uh, again, uh, there's, there's, I guess, if you just want to say he was a, uh, almost you'd call him a sexual opportunist. Um, yes. rather than gay, bisexual, straight, he kind of went, went where he, where, wherever he wanted to go. I think so. And that's what the FBI caught him on, mm -hmm. really. I think that's how they, really what they, how they put the pressure on him. Right. Because they made him write this confession. They write him out in his own hand. And apparently the worst thing was being involved with women with abortions rather mm -hmm. than the, than the gay stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you said that. Which was, readily yeah. admitted. Yeah. Well, not readily, but you see, <laughs> right. if, at the time, given the view of such things, right. that would have ruined the, the uh, case for the government. Right. So he could be a, a communist turned anti-communist and be a hero of sorts, right? So the, well, also, yeah. I mean, they also had other things. He had got a passport improperly. He had stolen. He had, he'd done, he'd, they had him on quite a number yeah, of Yeah, he, he was easily a criminal. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so, again, one of those things that strikes me as uh, shocking in our current age, even in our current time, that Whitaker Chambers still is used by, uh, there was a book out in 2010 by a guy at the Heritage uh, yeah. Foundation. Um, this is a, a right wing organization with a, yeah. and this is a senior fellow at Heritage, and he put a book out on Whitaker Chambers and, you know, praising him as an anti communist, right? Yeah. So, so that there, that there are whole, whole books on Whitaker Chambers as if he's oh, yes, some sir. upstanding right wing, uh, you know, uh, you know, beacon of good American democratic patriotism. Yeah. It's yeah. a, just a shocking thing the way we create these things. Like, uh, yeah, you know. we create, really what you did was take a saint and make a devil of him, <laughs> right. and take a devil and make a saint. That's of right. <laughs> it's interesting you use those terminologies too in the book because that's part of the the kind of narrative that's played out, right? You you wouldn't take the saint's wings away if before being a saint they'd also been a sinner. Yes, yes, that's right. just from one of the Huac guys. That's pretty it? amazing too. Those guys are just hilarious. I mean, if it weren't well, so scary, they're hilarious. They're terrifying. Right. And right. when you think that they put away the, the you know, the, the movie Trumbo, yeah, they yeah. put they're the ones who put Trumbo away. Right, right, right. And one of the guys, I forgot which one it is, um, ended up. He was, he was the chairman for a while, and he ended up 
uh, in prison with a couple of the guys he put there. Right, right. It was the a couple P- of the writers. He P.L. or uh, Thomas. Thomas, I think maybe is that yeah, right? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Parnell Thomas, you're yeah. quite right. Yeah, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he, but then they got him for, uh, for what was it? What was it? it, it he, he had people on his payroll yeah. whose only job was to give him the money. Their salary, <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's you know that again. It's it's so anyone who listens to the show knows that uh, my political persuasion is is to the left of left usually. But the more you read anything about the history of, in particular, power, money, but that tends to be a, a Republican perspective more than anything else, a GOP perspective, yeah. um, which is, you know, wealth and power. Not that obviously the, the Democrats don't have these things as well, but there's always a peculiar uh, prevalence of just dirty dealing. Well, that's certainly, I mean, part of the thing is, part of the reason that they keep attacking Halger, even to this day, 2010, as you mm-hmm. say, is that he is the one thing the House on American Activities ever did that mm. I mean was that they can point to. That's a they victory. ruined mm. thousands of lives, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. including my father's. Mm. And you know, I mean it just and they spent millions of dollars and the one thing they can point to is Alger Hiss. Alger Hiss, yeah. As a very young man, I was asked to run for a congressman's seat in Washington. I called my opponent a pink and a red. That's our show. We'll go out listening to Ballad of Richard Nixon by Joe Glazer, which is written as a parody of Gilbert and Sullivan's Ruler of the Queen's Navy. Thanks to Joan Brady for joining us via Skype from her home in London. Her new book, Alger Hiss Framed, was just published in the U.S. by Arcade Publishing. Next time on Interchange, The Dialectics of Sex, Kathy Weeks joins us to discuss Shulamith Firestone's classic of second-wave feminism. Thanks for listening. You can find this and past programs available to download online at wfhb.org slash news slash interchange. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Our studio engineer is Bryce Martin. Wes Martin is our executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Now they say I'm ready for the presidency. I've done my double crossing so effectively. Now they say I'm ready for the presidency. Unfortunately, my enemies discovered my special fund, which they gleefully uncovered. But I went on television and I saved the day. With a little help from checkers, I explained it all away. Woof, woof! I explained it all away so logically. Now they say I'm ready for the presidency. I explained it all away so logically. Now they say I'm ready for the presidency.